1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everybody and welcome to The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and today on the show we'll be talking about New York mob boss Joseph Colombo. I know that at the end of last week's episode I said we'd be talking about El Chapo, but due to some unforeseen problems with the audio file, it just wasn't going to be possible this week. But you all have my word that El Chapo will be the subject of next week's episode. But I really hope you guys still enjoy today's episode on Joseph Colombo, one of the most controversial five families bosses of all time. But without further ado, let's get right into the show. Joseph Anthony Colombo was born on June 16, 1923 in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Bensonhurst is one of the most mob-connected areas of New York, if not the entire U.S. Other mobsters like Sammy the Bull Gravano, Greg Scarpa, and Paul Castellano were also born in Bensonhurst. Colombo was born to Italian-American parents. His mother, Catherine, was born and raised in Brooklyn, while his father, Anthony, was born in Brazil. As a kid, like most others, he admired his parents, but especially his father, who became a well-known racketeer in the Profaci crime family. Joe and his father were really close as he grew up. His father taught him how to play golf, with much of his father's advice stemming from the sport. And at the age of 15, Joseph began attending New Utrecht High School in Bensonhurst. Sadly, in February of 1938, Colombo's father was found dead in his car with his mistress with the police reporting the cause of death as strangulation. The death of his father must have come as even more of a shock than usual, as Joseph wasn't aware of his father's life of crime. Soon after his father's death, Columba decided to drop out of high school in order to help support his family. When the U.S. government began drafting citizens to serve in World War II, Columba wanted to enlist, but was deemed ineligible since he was a sole provider for his mother, grandmother, and sister. However, Colombo eventually enlisted in the Coast Guard with his mother's reluctant consent in late 1942, around the one-year anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. After two years of military service, Colombo was diagnosed with neurosis and discharged from the Coast Guard. Neurosis is a mental illness that causes a sense of distress and deficit in functioning. Neurosis is characterized by anxiety, depression, or other feelings of unhappiness that may impair a person's functioning in virtually any area of their life. It's likely this illness was brought on by the death of his father, but took a few years to become noticeable to the ones around him. After his service ended in 1944, he immediately returned to Brooklyn and began looking for honest work around the city. The same year he returned from the war, he met a 21-year-old woman named Lucille Fiello, who he would later marry that year. The two had a son named Anthony Colombo in 1945, and they would go on to have four more children, including Joseph Colombo Jr., who was born in 1946. After returning from the war, Colombo gained membership into the International Longshoremen's Association, which made it easier for him to find well-paid work. He began working on the Brooklyn docks as a longshoreman. Through the Longshoremen's Association, he was able to meet people who were familiar with his late father. One of these people was Albert Anastasia, who was a former friend and cellmate of Colombo's father. By this point, Albert Anastasia was underboss to Vincent Mangano and ruled the Brooklyn waterfront through his control of six local chapters of the ILA, but was also well known as the architect behind Murder, Inc. It was really around the time he became a longshoreman that he was propelled into the criminal underworld. Columbo was often seen hanging out with well-known mobsters at a local bar and grill during work breaks. Police also began looking into Columbo around this time for racketeering, organizing craps games, and acting as an enforcer for the Profaci family. He also began running a loan sharking operation. 
As the years went by, Colombo would continue to receive more attention from law enforcement. Police investigations into the dock intensified by the mid-50s, and Colombo decided to switch his line of work. He began working in another heavily mob-controlled industry, meat sales and distribution. And despite working fewer hours, he earned more money as a meat salesman than he made at the waterfront. Using the extra money he had been earning, he opened a cafe in Brooklyn called Cafe Royale. Law enforcement became most interested in Colombo after he attended the wedding of Joe Perfacci's daughter. Carmelo Perfacci married Anthony Taco, the son of William Taco, who was a founding member of the Detroit Partnership. Colombo's son, Anthony, later said his father's presence, quote, was viewed by law enforcement as an indisputable sign of rank. By the late 50s, Colombo had become one of the top enforcers for the Perfacci family. He quickly proved to be efficient in collecting money and extorting for the family. It didn't go unnoticed and he was quickly straightened out and became a made man. And by 1960, he was promoted to capo. Around this time, Colombo bought a modest home in the residential neighborhood of Diker Heights, Brooklyn for his family. And Colombo had a unique style of parenting which some might interpret as abusive. While it's not often acknowledged, tons of stress can come from living the life of a mobster, whether it's the fear of getting clipped during their everyday life or getting sent to prison for the rest of it, it can cause some of these people to live in a constantly paranoid state. And as a result of that stress, Colombo punished his children with an iron fist if he felt they did something to put their lives at risk. But it's possible Colombo had a reason to act this way as a war was about to break out within the Perfacci family. Throughout the 50s, boss of the family, Joe Perfacci, demanded a monthly tribute of $25 from every soldier in the family. Family capo, Frank, Frankie Schatz Abadamarco, oversaw a crew that included the Gallo brothers as well as Carmen Persico. Abadamarco controlled a lucrative numbers racket that earned nearly $2.5 million a year, and by early 1959, Abadamarco, with the support of the Gallo brothers and Persico, began refusing to pay tribute to Perfacci. By late 1959, Abadamarco's debt had grown to $50,000. He claimed he was in debt, although he owned two homes in New Jersey and Florida. Perfacci allegedly made a deal with Joe Gallo that would see Gallo and his crew carry out Abadamarco's murder in exchange for his numbers racket. On November 4, 1959, while walking out of his cousin's bar in Park Slope, Brooklyn, he was shot and killed by two hitmen. Some theories claim that Gallo ordered his crew member, Joseph Gioelli, and another shooter to carry out the hit, while others claim the Gallo brothers to themselves carried it out. Following the hit, Perfacci ordered the Gallos to hand over a Abadamarco's son, Anthony. The Gallos refused, and in return, Perfacci refused to give them the numbers racket. This is what would really kick off the first of many civil wars within the family. And before long, the Gallo crew and Persico were aligned against Perfacci and his loyalists. On February 27, 1961, the Gallo brothers kidnapped four of Perfacci's top men, his underboss Joe Magliaccio, his brother Frank, Capo Salvatore Musaccia, and soldier John Shimon, to negotiate for a bigger portion of the family's rackets. Joe Perfacci himself evaded capture by flying to Florida and admitting himself to a hospital. Joe Gallo wanted to kill one hostage and demand 100000 before starting negotiations, but his brother Larry overruled him on the matter. While holding the hostages, Larry and Albert Gallo sent Joe Gallo to California to negotiate with Perfacci's conciliary, Charles the Sige Lo Cicero. After a few weeks, Perfacci and Lo Cicero made a deal with the Gallos and secured the peaceful release of the hostages. But as Perfacci's track record would show you, he had no intention of honoring the peace agreement. In August of 1961, Perfacci ordered the murders of Gallo gang members Joseph Gioelli and Larry Gallo. Carmen Persico decided to switch sides and became a Perfacci loyalist, hoping to get a better position within the family. Perfacci tasked Persico with killing Larry Gallo. On August 20th, 1961, Larry Gallo was called to a meeting at the Sahara Lounge in East Flatbush to meet Carmen Persico along with Perfacci hitman Salvatore Sally D. D'Ambrosio. When Larry showed up, Persico attempted to strangle him with a rope, only being stopped when a policeman rushed in and intervened. Larry survived, but had an awful scar afterward. This incident is what gave Carmen Persico his nickname, The Snake. 
Shortly after, in late August 1961, Joseph Gioelli went deep-sea fishing with Salvatore D'Ambrosio. The next anyone heard from Gioelli was on August 25, 1961, when a dead fish wrapped in his clothes was thrown on the doorstep of a Gallo Gang hangout to signify he sleeps with the fishes, which inspired the death of Luca Brazzi in The Godfather. The death of Gioelli kickstarted a war that would result in nine murders and three disappearances, including the murders of seven Gallo Gang members as well as four made guys in the Profaci family. In November 1961, Joe Gallo was sentenced to 7 to 14 years in prison for conspiracy and extortion. Then, on June 6, 1962, Joe Profaci died of liver cancer, and his longtime underboss, Joseph Magliaccio, became boss of the family, but was denied a seat on the commission. But Magliaccio wasn't interested in stopping the war. He continued pursuing the Gallo gang, ordering several hits, none of which were successful. But after Carmen Persica went away for extortion in 1963, the war would quiet down a little bit. Also in 1963, Joe Magliaccio, bitter about being denied a seat on the commission, began plotting with Joe Bonanno to assassinate several rivals on the commission, including bosses Tommy Lucchese, Carlo Gambino, and boss of the Buffalo family, Stefano Magadino. Magliaccio was assigned the task of killing Tommy Lucchese, and he farmed out the job to one of his top capos, none other than Joe Colombo. But Joe Colombo saw an opportunity and quickly went to Lucchese and Gambino and revealed the plot on their lives. The two realized Magliaccio couldn't have planned it by himself, and after realizing how close Joe Bonanno was with Magliaccio and Joe Profaci before him, they concluded that Bonanno must have been the real mastermind. The commission summoned Magliaccio and Bonanno to explain themselves, but fearing for his life, Joe Bonanno went into hiding, leaving Magliaccio to deal with the commission by himself. Badly shaken and in poor health, Magliaccio confessed to his role in the plot, and the commission forced him to retire his boss and pay a $50,000 fine. As a reward for revealing the plot, Colombo was installed as boss of the Profaci family, which he quickly renamed the Colombo family, a title that it still holds to this day. He became boss at the age of 41, which made him one of the youngest bosses serving in the U.S. at the time. He was also the first American-born boss of a New York crime family. Colombo was clear about his ambition. Having risen to the top of the family at such a young age, he was smart enough to realize that if he played his cards right, he could have a long, successful reign as boss. He immediately began reshuffling the family's ranks, putting old-time gangsters in greater positions of power as opposed to younger, more ambitious ones that could pose a threat to his position. He promoted Capo John Sonny Francis to the position of underboss until his conviction for bank robbery in 1967 when he would promote old-timer Salvatore Charlie Lemons Manillo. Another old-time mobster named Benedetto D'Alessandro was named Consigliere, but when D'Alessandro retired in 1969, Colombo promoted Joseph Iacovelli to fill the position. After establishing his ruling body, Colombo knew he had to do something to stabilize the family after enduring the war with the Gallo Gang. Along with former Gallo crew member Nicholas Bianco and boss of the New England crime family Raymond Patriarca, Colombo was finally able to end the war with the Gallos, and as a reward for his loyalty, Bianco was inducted into the family. When Carmen Persico was released from prison, Colombo immediately promoted him to capo as a reward for his loyalty to the family, and by the late 60s, Persico's crew was one of the most profitable in the Colombo family. In 1966, Colombo would face his first legal trouble in his mob career. In September 1966, a meeting would take place at the La Stella restaurant in Forest Hills, Queens. The exact reason for the meeting isn't known, but it was likely called to straighten out a dispute between boss of the New Orleans crime family Carlos Marcello and Anthony Corallo, who is the son of former New Orleans street boss Silvestro Silverdollar Sam Corallo, who was the acting boss for the New Orleans family for over 20 years before his deportation when Carlos Marcello would take over as boss. The problem between the two was about Corallo's position in the family. He believed he was entitled to a bigger piece of the pie as well as a consideration as Marcello's successor. Two New York police officers were walking the streets during their shifts when they'd noticed an unusual amount of black limousines outside the restaurant. They decided to inspect, 
at which point they barged in and stumbled upon the largest gathering of major mob bosses since the Appalachian meeting in 1957. All those in attendance were charged with consorting with known criminals. Among those arrested included Neil Delacroach, Thomas E. Boley, and Mike Miranda. Santo Traficante Jr. was also in attendance as well as four New Orleans family mobsters. The meeting was dubbed Little Appalachian. All the mobsters taken into custody were released on bail and called to testify before a grand jury. On May 9, 1966, Colombo was sentenced to 30 days in jail for contempt of court for refusing to answer questions before the grand jury related to the meeting. As the 60s went on, even though he had brought peace and stability to the family, other bosses saw Colombo as Carlo Gambino's puppet boss and felt he didn't deserve the position. Under boss of the New Jersey-based DeCavacanti family, Frank Maggiore was caught on wiretap saying about Colombo, quote, How can they make a guy like Colombo sit at the commission? But no one dared to challenge Colombo's position because to challenge him would mean challenging Carlo Gambino. And if the deck wasn't already stacked against Colombo, he would make things worse for himself. In April 1970, he formed the Italian-American Civil Rights League. And although Colombo held no specific position in the organization, he controlled it through Natalie Marcone, who was the head of the league. Colombo became a frequent and very vocal speaker for the league. I'll give it to Colombo, though. He seriously believed in what the league stood for and tried to end discrimination against Italian Americans, but it made the other bosses hate him even more than before. It brought way too much attention, not only on Colombo, but the entire New York Mafia. Incidents like April 30th, 1970, where Columbus and 30 picketers outside FBI headquarters in the Upper East Side of Manhattan did not help his case in the slightest. And then on June 29th, 1970, Columbus held the league's first rally. An estimated 100,000 people attended the group's first Unity Day rally held in New York's iconic Columbus Circle, including several U.S. congressmen. Less than a year after being established, it had 4,000 members across several states who all paid dues. After the first rally, the other New York bosses ordered their guys not to support Colombo's cause and stay away from the demonstrations. The league's chief organizer, Gambino family capo, Joseph DeChico, resigned, he claimed due to poor health. Under Colombo's guidance, the league grew quickly and achieved a national attention. As a result, Colombo appeared on television interviews, fundraisers, and speaking engagements for the league. And no matter how bad the league was for the mob, it would be an injustice not to speak on how much of a legitimate activist Joe Colombo was. In July 1970, Attorney General John Mitchell called for all government departments to stop using the words Mafia and Cosa Nostra, which was a big step in the eyes of a lot of Italian Americans who felt that law enforcement and the media overemphasized the involvement of Italian Americans in organized crime. John Mitchell's statement prompted New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller to announce, quote, Organized crime includes members of virtually every ethnic group. The assistance of foreign labels to lend a Hollywood aura of sensationalism to this criminality damages the good name of millions of Italian Americans to whom hard work, self-reliance, solid family upbringing, and respect for the law are a tradition and the rule. So you can see that Colombo was inspiring change, especially at the state level. Colombo would also get involved with a group of residents dubbed the Corona Fighting 69. These residents in the neighborhood of Corona, Queens, were fighting to save their homes, where their families had lived for generations from demolition. But their pleas were ignored by city officials, and they were being offered significantly less money for their homes compared to their actual worth. Colombo worked with a few state assemblymen and a lawyer named Mario Cuomo, who would go on to become the 52nd governor of New York. With their help, Colombo was able to get the homeowners more favorable deals. But while Colombo was doing good for the community, in the fall of 1970, he would take publicity to another level. He set up a lavish fundraiser headlined by Frank Sinatra in the Felt Forum at Madison Square Garden. The event was star-studded with celebrities like Connie Francis and Sammy Davis Jr., as well as TV producers from NBC. The event raised thousands of dollars, which enabled the league to establish a summer camp for underprivileged urban youth. Incidents like this didn't just bring media attention, it brought attention from the feds, who soon launched a full-fledged investigation into Colombo and his organization. 
but it was really by his own doing. There has never been a suspected mobster who willingly spoke to the media and placed himself in the public eye as much as Joe Colombo. Unfortunately, the stress from organizing events for the League, battling the FBI, and trying to take care of his criminal business had caused Colombo to develop a condition called Bell's Palsy. Bell's Palsy is an unexplained episode of facial muscle weakness or paralysis on one side of the face. Bell's Palsy is temporary with most people experiencing improvement after two weeks and full recovery after three months. However, due to all of the stress in Colombo's life, he would go through several bouts of the condition, which is evident if you look at some pictures of him from around the time. The only good news for Colombo was that most of his operations were conducted in Brooklyn and Long Island, which created some jurisdictional issues for law enforcement to work around. But despite all of his struggles, he continued with his activism through the League by aligning the League with rabbi and political activist Mir Kahan's Jewish Defense League. At one point, Colombo even posted bail for 11 jailed Defense League members. However, Colombo would be facing legal trouble of his own. On March 11, 1971, Colombo was convicted and sentenced to two and a half years for perjury after lying on a real estate application years earlier. His sentence was delayed pending appeal. But then, in the spring of 1971, Colombo would take his biggest stand yet. Paramount Pictures started filming The Godfather. Colombo demanded that Paramount shelve the movie. He stated he was tired of seeing Italians portrayed as vicious thugs on the big screens. Mobsters began trailing producer Al Ruddy and then smashed every window in his sports car and left a note warning him to stop the film. A Paramount executive named Robert Evans received a phone call telling him to basically get out of town or else. Mob-controlled unions refused to let director Francis Ford Coppola shoot in certain neighborhoods and Paramount's New York offices even had to be evacuated after someone phoned in a bomb threat twice. Eventually, Paramount realized this movie wasn't going to be made without Columbo, and they set up a meeting between him and Al Ruddy at the Park Sheraton Hotel. Surprisingly, though, Columbo only had one demand, that the words Mafia and Cosa Nostra be removed from the script. They finally came to an agreement, and Columbo embraced the production with open arms. But for all his activism, Columbo forgot that he had a reputation as boss to maintain, and in 1971, he would experience a meteoric downfall. Joe Gallo was released from prison on April 11, 1971, after serving 10 years and being run through three different prisons. Colombo and his consigliere, Joseph Iacovelli, invited Gallo to a peace meeting to bury the hatchet from the war nearly a decade earlier. Colombo offered Gallo a peace gesture of $1,000, but Gallo reportedly told the family representatives that the 1963 peace agreement didn't apply to him because he was locked up and demanded $100,000 to settle the dispute, which Colombo immediately refused, which would kick off somewhat of a second Colombo family war. On June 8, 1971, Colombo arrived at the second annual Italian-American Unity Day rally. Thousands were in attendance along with congressmen and entertainers. As Joe was about to take the stage to address the crowds, he was approached by a man named Jerome A. Johnson who was posing as a photographer. He even had the camera and press credentials to match. Johnson stepped forward and shot Columbo three times at point-blank range. According to a Life magazine article about the shooting, quote, Columbo collapsed at the foot of the statue of Christopher Columbus, grievously wounded with three bullets in his head and neck. Within seconds, police officers as well as attendees overwhelmed Johnson, but then another series of shots rang out, this time hitting Jerome Johnson, who was now mortally wounded. It suspected Johnson's shooter was Columbo's bodyguard, Philip Rosillo. Columbo was quickly put on a stretcher and carted off in an ambulance. Paramedics were able to resuscitate him as they rushed him to Roosevelt Hospital in critical condition. And although being given less than a 50-50 chance of survival, surgeons were able to remove one slug from the midbrain and another slug from the neck during the five-hour operation. Despite the doctor's good work, Columbo went into a coma, but by the next morning, his condition had improved slightly. He was able to breathe on his own and move his left arm. Meanwhile, investigators recovered several handguns from the bloody scene at Columbus Circle and quickly identified Columbo's shooter as 25-year-old Jerome Johnson, a resident of New Jersey and an individual police described as, quote, a gun buff and an admirer of Hitler. And there are hundreds of theories about who, if anyone at all, hired Jerome Johnson to carry out the murder. 
but because the shooter was black, the obvious first suspect was Joe Gallo, who became friendly with Nicky Barnes and other black gangsters while he was locked up in Greenhaven Correctional Facility. But also, Gallo just fucking hated Columbo. But others claim it was a commission decision to put out a hit on Columbo due to the media attention he was bringing on all five families. However, Joe's son, Anthony Columbo, told author Ed Scarpo he believed the FBI was responsible for trying to kill his father, saying, quote, would Jerome Johnson or anyone else believe that the Gallows had the influence to get Johnson out of Columbus Circle? It's not plausible. Who would Johnson believe could slip him away and cover it up? The Gallows or law enforcement? Johnson's killer was never caught or identified, though the FBI suspected Columbus bodyguard Philip Rosillo as the killer. He was later brought in for questioning and released. But no matter the reason, Joe Columbo lived out most of the next seven years at his Brooklyn home, still comatose and paralyzed. Shortly after the Columbo shooting, a meeting of the high-ranking members of the family was held. At the meeting, underboss Salvatore Mineo was asked to take over as temporary boss, but Mineo refused citing his old age and failing health and recommended that consigliere Joseph Iacovelli become acting boss, which he would. And although the leadership of the Colombo family believed Gallo was the mastermind behind the attempt on Colombo's life, Iacovelli opted not to pursue vengeance right away due to the NYPD. While the police believed Gallo was not involved in the Colombo shooting, they knew members of the family were lining up to take revenge, so the police had assigned officers to follow Gallo around to make sure he wasn't harmed, making it nearly impossible for Iacovelli or anyone else to touch him. However, by 1972, most of the publicity surrounding the Columbo shooting had faded, and Joseph Iacovelli put an open contract on Gallo's head. On April 7, 1972, at around 4.30 a.m., Joe Gallo and his family entered Umberto's Clam House in Manhattan's Little Italy, which was owned by Genovese family powerhouse Matty the Horse Ioniello. Joe Gallo, along with his wife, sister, and daughter, as well as his bodyguard Peter, Pete the Greek, Diopolis, and his girlfriend, the group had gone out to celebrate Joe's 43rd birthday. Before going to Umberto's, the group had visited the Copacabana with actor Jerry Orbach and his wife to see a performance by comedian Don Rickles and singer Peter Lemangelo. Once at the restaurant, the party took two tables with Gallo and Diopolis facing the wall. Colombo associate Joseph Luparelli claimed he was sitting at the bar. When Luparelli saw Gallo, he claimed he immediately left Umberto's and walked to a Colombo hangout two blocks away to contact Joseph Iacovelli. After getting in touch with Iacovelli, Luparelli said he recruited Colombo associates Philip Gambino, Carmen, Sonny Pinto, DiBiase, and two other men reportedly members of the Patriarca family. When the group reached Umberto's, Luparelli stayed in the car and the other four men went inside through the back door. Between seafood courses, the four gunmen walked into the dining room and opened fire with 32 and 38 caliber revolvers. Gallo cursed and tried to go for his gun, but 20 shots were fired at him. After overturning a butcher block dining table, Gallo staggered to the front door. Witnesses claim he did it in an attempt to draw fire away from his family. Diopolis was hit once in the hip. The mortally wounded Gallo stumbled into the street and collapsed. No one has ever been arrested for the Gallo murder, which has led to tons of speculation over who the killer or killers were. Another account of the murder was offered by Frank Sheeran, whose life inspired the movie The Irishman. Shortly before his death in 2003, Sheeran claimed that he was the lone triggerman in the Gallo hit, acting on orders from Buffalo family boss Russell Buffalino. While both Sheeran and Luparelli's claims are equally disputed, I tend to lean more in the direction of Luparelli's story, the main reason being because Gallo's widow later stated she remembered the attack involving multiple men, all of whom were short and appeared to be Italian, with Sheeran being of Irish and Swedish descent as well as 6'4". After Joey Gallo's funeral, looking for revenge, his brother Albert sent a gunman from Las Vegas to the Neapolitan Noodle Restaurant in Manhattan where Joseph Iacovelli, as well as Carmen Persico's brother, Alphonse Alleyboy Persico, and close associate Gennaro Langello were dining. But the shooter wasn't familiar with the mobsters and ended up shooting four innocent diners instead, killing two of them. 
After the attempted hit, Yacovelli fled New York, and with Underboss, who made it clear he wasn't interested in being boss, the door opened for Carmen Persico, who is now the leader of a powerful faction within the family. Persico became boss in 1973, but would go on to spend most of his reign in prison, using a slew of front bosses to run the family like Gennaro Langello and his son Alphonse Little Alley Boy Persico. However, in 1973, Persico was imprisoned on hijacking and loan sharking charges, at which point a guy named Joseph Broncato took over as acting boss. However, unlike many other mobsters, he had no interest in a permanent leadership position and only took the job of acting boss for the purpose of finally negotiating an end to the war with the remaining Gala crew, which by then had split itself into two groups that had started fighting each other. Brancato and the other New York bosses negotiated an agreement in which Albert Gallo and his remaining crew left the Colombo family and peacefully joined the Genovese family. And just like that, the Gallo Wars were finally over. And that's basically all the history directly related to Colombo as he obviously didn't have any involvement in the family by this point. Unfortunately, in early May 1978, Joe Colombo's health began deteriorating rapidly and as a result was taken to St. Luke's Hospital in Newburgh, suffering from, quote, intracerebral problems. Two weeks later, on May 22, 1978, Joseph Colombo passed away at the age of 54. Hospital staff announced cardiac arrest as the official cause of death, quote, brought on by his injury seven years ago. Colombo, like many other monsters, is someone that you have to wonder what they would have become if he didn't get involved with the streets. I think the death of his father really made him take a turn for the worse. If not for that, I think he could have gone on to be an even more legitimate political activist without being hindered by the mafia, but he was one of the most lightweight bosses ever. His resume up to the point that he became boss really only included overseeing craps games and running the docks. He would experience a meteoric rise to power and a similar downfall, but during his time as boss he was able to tiptoe through the conflicts in the family and eventually restore peace to a family that looked lost. And while obviously not on the level of a Carlo Gambino by any means, Colombo was a decent boss and definitely led an interesting life. That's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's episode and tune back in next Wednesday. If you'd like to support the show, it'd be great if you could follow, like, and share the podcast as well as the podcast Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod. But with that said, I hope everybody has a great rest of their day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.